Well, I'm glad to see each and every one of you this morning. I'm super glad to be here together. Um, something that you might not know about me, if you haven't been to my house, you might not know that when it comes to decorating, I am a minimalist, okay? I have very few things on my walls, and I, I have a few special things that like sit on the tables, but not very much, okay? I'm generally not into knickknacks and things like that. I like uncluttered, open spaces. That's my favorite, like whether it's a horizontal surface or it's a vertical one. Uncluttered, okay? That's how I roll. We won't talk about how many books I own because that's different. That's entirely different. And, and listen, it's not hoarding if it's books, okay? But there is one very specific exception to my kind of anti-collecting rule, and that's nativity scenes. So I've always been captivated by nativity scenes. Ever since I was a small child, I have memories of my mom taking me into this Catholic bookstore in the Chicago Ridge Mall, and we would look at, they have these just amazing, like detailed, handcrafted, you know, some of them come from Italy or whatever. They're just beautiful, these figurines that are huge. And I could just look at those over and over and over again, those big, expensive sets. And now I don't own anything that's nearly that fancy, but over the years, I, I've collected actually quite a few nativity scenes. I have 15 of them all together. They're all different. They're different colors, they're different styles, they're different sizes and different shapes. Um, and every year, every one of them gets unboxed and unwrapped and it gets set out on a shelf or on a table somewhere in the house so that everywhere I look in my home during the Christmas season, there is an opportunity for me to pause and reflect. So I love how each character has a different part in the story. They have a different set of experiences and a different perspective of the events and the elements of, of everything that comes together to make up the Christmas story. So there's Jesus, and there's Mary, and there's Joseph, of course. Those are the central figures. They always have to be there, or else it's not a nativity scene. Usually there's a shepherd and sometimes a couple of animals, and sometimes some of them have an angel. And then there's the wise men, and I just have to stop for a second and give a shout out to all of my historical purists that are here. You know, I know, okay, like I know, they probably weren't there with the infant Jesus, and we include them in the nativity scene, and some people are really bugged by that. But it's okay, let's just all agree just for the purposes of this morning to embrace a little bit of artistic license. So the wise men. What the nativity scene does for me is it gives me this visual representation that helps me as I try to meditate on the significance of Jesus and the inbreaking of the kingdom that's come at Christmas. So you see what we're always in danger of doing with any of the narrative stories that we read in the Bible is that we are tempted to allow those, those characters, those figures that we read about to remain on the pages, two-dimensional. And we're tempted to allow our minds to diminish and gloss over what is the very, very real and very human experience of these characters. And it's certainly true here with the Christmas story. 
So like Vince talked about last week, shepherds in a field and this supernatural being just appears in the sky and it says with a loud noise or a loud shout, depending on what, what version you read, like this thing showed up in the sky and it hollered at them. Do you, what do you think they, they thought? I mean, they were probably like terribly, terribly freaked out. I mean, that would scare me. So I think about that when I look at my nativity scenes and I look at each character. I think about the, the shepherd that's included sometimes. He's usually a tall guy and he's got a robe on and a lot of times, some of them that I have, he's got this um, a, a sheep draped across his shoulders kind of like he's carrying it, right? You guys have seen those? Was that a baby that he couldn't leave behind? Was that a lamb? Like why does he have it with him? Maybe he was hand feeding it. Maybe its mother died. You know, I, I don't know what the story was, why he had to have the sheep with it, but he couldn't leave it for some reason. He couldn't leave it exposed to the predators and the elements. But he had to go. He had to go see Jesus. That was the only thing that he could do. So he slung it across his shoulders and off he went with the sheep on his back. And then when he got there, like, I don't know how long, how far away they were. I don't know any of that. So when he got there, and was he still like, out of breath, was his heart pounding because he was still freaked out from seeing the angel? And, and as he gazed on that infant, as he looked at Jesus in the manger, what was, what was he thinking? Looking at this baby that they're saying, this is the Messiah. This is the person that you've been hearing about for your entire life you've been waiting for. And so have generations and generations of your family before you. What would that have been like? And we can engage in the same kind of exercise for any one of those figures in that scene. But today, as we're in our fourth week of our Advent series, we're focusing on the power of love. And so the character that we're gonna talk about today is Mary. We're gonna talk about Mary and her place in the great story of God. Because Mary seems to be a wonderful example. She is the personification of one who is loved by God, who understands that that is true, and she loves him back with a fierce passion. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 1, and we're going to read the account in the scriptures of when Mary came onto the scene. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin who was pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, who was a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, Greetings. How are you doing today? The Lord is with you. Verse 29, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of a greeting this might be. I mean, no, no kidding. Wondered what kind of a greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. 
And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. She, who was unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. And then there's, there's like a space in the Bible, like they skip, you know, there's a space, like hit the return button, and there's a couple, couple of pauses there. I think it was a pretty long pause if I was really thinking about it. But in verse 38, Mary says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. So there's certainly something special about Mary, the mother of Jesus. People have been captivated by her love, by her devotion, by her faithfulness for centuries. We sing about her, especially around Christmas. There's lots of carols that she's featured in. She's written about in many poems and many books. Churches, some of the grandest cathedrals in the whole world are named after her. And some of the greatest examples of sculptures and paintings and art feature her as the subject. But it's interesting, what is the message that is sent through some of the imagery that comes to mind when we're thinking about Mary? Like this one. Look at sweet Mary. Look how sweet she is. She's praying in her room. Because, of course, she probably spent most of her time in prayer, right? That's probably what she did, like, I don't know, 12, 14 hours a day. Just praying in her room. God chose her, after all, right? God chose her. She was asked to carry his son, so she must have been extra good and extra holy. Look at her expression. It's kind of far away. It's hard to see, but it's just, it's this serenity and this peace and this, you know, just surrender. She's this humble young maiden with her hands on her chest. She says quietly, in King James language, obviously, I think it has to be, be it unto me according to what you have said. Isn't that what we think of? Isn't that what the paintings portray? But is that an accurate picture? Is that like really what she was like? Is that an accurate picture of the reality of her humanness and what she would have been experiencing in that moment when God came calling with one of his trademark wild requests? She can't have just been only the sweet, simple, quiet, gentle little maiden that we sing about and we see in these pictures. So I like this image better. I like this image better. Look at that. This is someone you don't mess with. You don't mess with that. I don't know if you can see, she's the children, she's like protecting those children. 
and she's got a club in her hand. It looks like a baseball bat. And, and look, like under her feet, you have to see what's under her feet. You know what that is? That's a demon. Like she's stomping on a demon. You don't mess with that. I think this is a much more realistic depiction of Mary. Because for her to say this yes to God and this crazy thing that he was asking her to do, she had to have some incredible strength and a hefty dose of courage. Have you ever known somebody like this? Somebody who's small, but they're mighty? If we think of public figures that fit the bill, Mother Teresa is one that immediately comes to mind. She was this little bitty nun, like tiny, like literally she was only five foot tall and barely over 100 pounds. She was very humble, but she was another person that had had an encounter, a radical encounter of God's love. And she loved him back with that fierceness that changed a whole nation and ultimately the entire world through her life and her example. With Mother Teresa and with Mary, there's definitely more than meets the eye. So I wonder about Mary, I wonder about her. What do you think she was like? So the culture of the day when she lived was not known for placing a high value on the contributions of women, uh, to put it mildly. But Mary, like the rest of the Jewish people, for her whole life, she must have been hearing those stories of when the kingdom of God had been a tangible reality in the history of Israel. And she would also have heard from the time she was a small child the prophecies that foretold the Messiah to come who would again usher in that reality of God's rule and reign on this earth. She would have understood the importance of this moment and Mary apparently stood out from the crowd because by the time God sent Gabriel with this big request, she was ready to say yes. So God must have seen in her that strength and that courage that his love for her had inspired and that would allow her to express her love for him in this yes, this yes that she gave to this unbelievably wild request. But then here's where we're tempted into another kind of error. So we can do the total opposite of diminishing the characters of Scripture. And instead, we can make the mistake of elevating them to some sort of spiritual superstar status. Like we do this all the time, we do it with Jesus. You know, well, of course, he could handle that. He could heal those people. He could cast out those demons. He could, you know, be nice to people who were hateful to him because he was the son of God. Of course, he could do that. But it's not just Jesus we do it to. It, it, it's all of the heroes of the Bible, and Mary is no exception. So whether it's consciously or, or subconsciously, we ascribe these qualities to them that set them above us, normal people, right? We don't necessarily believe that we have the same potential inside each and every one of us. Because we feel afraid. We feel afraid and we think that that disqualifies us 
from having these kind of encounters with God. But fear never disqualifies anyone from experiencing the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. Do you think Mary was afraid? You think she was afraid? You betcha. You betcha. That's what the verse says. She was troubled and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. No kidding. No kidding. Because anytime an angel showed up in the stories, like something big was about to go down. This was not a normal day. Anytime that happened, something was up. And what must she have been thinking? What must she have been thinking? Because normally, those stories happen to grown men, warriors and kings and leaders. And here she is, this teenage girl who's not even married. It's not supposed to happen to her. What must she have been thinking? I'm sure she was afraid. I am sure she was afraid. There's no way she wasn't. And then when he told her the details of the plan, whatever. Seriously? In a society where her only hope for a good future was tied to making a good marriage, she was risking losing her fiance, which represented provision in her life if she was found to be pregnant. And, and really, maybe she didn't even need to worry about losing her fiance because if she was thought to be fooling around with somebody, they could stone her to death. So you wouldn't have to worry about where you were gonna live and what you were gonna do because you wouldn't make it that far. And even if, even if for some reason, you know, say they had this you know, good relationship and she, she had been confident that Joseph will believe me when I tell him this wild story, yes, God's baby, it's cool. Even if she thought he would believe her, you know, because the angel, you know, we know that part of the story, right? That Joseph had the dream, but Gabriel didn't mention that part. He didn't give her any assurance that him or God would tell Joseph what was going on. She didn't know. But even, even if she was confident that he would believe her, there were still severe societal implications to an unmarried woman turning up pregnant. And to you and me today, it'd be easy to just dismiss that and say, well, what's the big deal about that? But let me tell you, in an honor-based collectivist culture like she lived in, you might rather be stoned to death than to bear the shame of having dishonored your family. So we cannot hear this story today and allow ourselves to gloss over the fact that Mary was being asked to do something that surely, there's no way it didn't, leave her quaking in her sandals. But Mary didn't cut and run, did she? She didn't cut and run, she did it anyway. She did it anyway. It's Franklin Roosevelt that's credited with saying courage is not the absence of fear, but it's rather the assessment that there is something, something else is more important than fear. Courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the assessment that something else is more important than fear. So what's more important than fear in the kingdom of God? 
It's love. That's it, it's love. Love is what motivated Mary to give her yes to God. And love is what motivated God to send Jesus to the earth in the first place. Love is more important than fear. And that is what gives us courage. Now the Bible talks about the relationship between fear and love. In 1 John 4.18 There is no fear in love. There is no fear in love because perfect love drives out fear. As we close this morning, I want to point out one final error that we might fall into when we are thinking about Mary's part in the story. We could make the mistake of thinking that Mary's experience was this like once in the course of human history kind of a thing. And, and in some ways, I mean, don't get me wrong, in some ways it was. But the truth is, the truth is that God comes to each of us every single day, every person sitting in this room, and myself included, God comes to us each day, and this is what he asks us. Will you carry my likeness into this dark and weary world? Will you bear my son in your flesh? Will you be his hands and feet? Will you be that incarnation of his father's heart toward this world, this creation that is groaning and it's longing and it's waiting for an experience to feel the nearness of a God who loves them so much that he would give up being God just to be with them? Will you, like his servant Mary, respond, whatever that looks like in your context, whatever that looks like in your life, the people that you come in contact with, the influence that you have, the opportunities that pass in front of you every single day, will you, like Mary, give God your yes and carry the image of his son into this world? That's the opportunity that he sets before us every single day. And my prayer for us all through this Christmas season and through the rest of our lives is that we would all answer just like Mary did with the full power of his love for us and our response of our love back to him that we would be able to say, be it unto me according to what you have said. May that be our prayer today.